This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're speaking with lawyer Michael Schechter, a partner at the law firm of Wilkie Farr and Gallagher in New York City. You're based in the New York office, aren't you, Michael? I am. Michael recently had a terrific defense verdict, an acquittal in a criminal case, very prominent, high profile criminal case that the government, the Department of Justice, brought against his client, Tom Barrick in Washington, D.C. It was a very high-profile case. Outsiders looking at it weren't at all sure that an acquittal was even possible in this case. But Michael obtained an acquittal in the case. And Michael, why don't you set the stage for us? Who was your client and what were the charges? Tom Barrick uh, was the founder and uh, CEO of a private equity firm that's focused on real estate investing called Colony Capital. He was featured on the cover of Fortune magazine as the greatest real estate investor alive. And uh, that uh, company, Colony Capital, later became a public company for which he was CEO and uh, executive chairman. Uh, It's a company which is now known as Digital Bridge. He also had a uh, longstanding relationship from the real estate investment business uh, with Donald Trump. He knew him uh, since uh, being involved in the sale of the Plaza Hotel to Donald Trump. It's a relationship that he maintained over the years. And uh, as a result of that relationship, he uh, chaired Donald Trump's inaugural uh, when he was elected president, uh, although he never served as a, uh, as a member of the campaign or a member of the administration. He was uh, an informal advisor to Donald Trump during the campaign and, and during his uh, presidency. Obviously, to folks, this is a very prominent businessman. Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles. Any, any businessman in Los Angeles would know who Tom Barrick is. Longstanding, very distinguished career at Colony Capital, extremely well-known. And for him to be the subject of these kinds of criminal charges, I think, was very shocking to a lot of people. Most of all to him, Tom is also a, a really a, a, an unbelievable person. He's really, he's, he's brilliant. He's warm. He is, you ask anybody, he is uh, kind to absolutely everybody. Uh, and he developed a reputation, a stellar reputation for integrity throughout the industry. I think it's very difficult to find anybody that would have a negative word to say uh, about him. So it was, it was very surprising uh, to, to him and I, I think to everybody that, uh, that knows him. And he's got a terrific reputation, really not just in California, certainly on the East Coast as well, and really around the world. He has a, a very substantial uh, institutional investor following uh, really around the globe. He has uh, received France's highest honors for a civilian. He really has, has led a, 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 life, a life of integrity and, uh, and doing the right thing. So it was, it was <laughs> very <laughs> shocking to him when this happened. Well, you said that he had a longstanding relationship with President Trump and had headed his inauguration committee. How did he get in the crosshairs? What were the charges that the Department of Justice brought against him? I mean, I think just in terms of what brought him within the crosshairs is you know, there were widespread, everybody knows there were uh, very broad investigations in the special counsel's office and congressional investigations of everything that had anything to do with Donald Trump, including the inauguration. Um, which was, you know, scrubbed and observed. And of course, because Tom has always led a life of following the rules, they found nothing at all improper about the inauguration. But I think everybody 
that had some connection to President Trump uh, found themselves within the scope of very broad investigations. That's how the, the government turns to uh, turns their attention to him. Um, the charges against him were very unique. He was charged under a, under a uh, rarely used criminal statute, which is Title 18 United States Code Section 951, which is it makes it a crime to act as a foreign agent without providing notification to the attorney general. And begs the question of what it means to be a foreign agent. And that is defined in that statute as anybody who agrees to operate within the United States subject to the direction or control of a foreign government or a foreign government official. That's the, that's the crime. Uh, although not so limited by its terms, uh, the Justice Department's guidance talks about it being used for what they call espionage light. So it's designed uh, to be utilized not really for lobbying uh, like a similar statute, a FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act. It is intended to be used for espionage. So it's anyone who acts as an agent of a foreign government in the United States has got to notify the attorney general. That's basically what it requires. That's that's correct. It's not. A and if you don't do that, that's a crime. Exactly. Exactly. And you you mentioned FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act. How is 18 U.S.C. Section 1951 different from FARA? Right, 951 is different sure. uh, from FARA in that FARA is uh, is a little bit broader, but also more narrow. It is broader in that it uh, makes it a crime or it can be a civil violation um, for anybody to act at the request, direction, or control of a foreign government without registration with the Justice Department. However, for that statute, um, the, the government also needs to prove that the person knew that they were required to register and did not do so. And that uh, extra mens rea requirement, that extra state of mind requirement is not present under 951. The law says that for 951, you just need to show that you were acting, that you knew you were acting as an agent of a foreign power. So in that way, it's a, it's a little bit uh, easier to prove even though its scope is a little bit more narrow. So the department charged him under Section 951, but not under FARA. Any thoughts or speculation as to why they didn't charge him under FARA as well or instead? No, it's a question that the judge asked as well. And my best guess is that they wanted to avoid that having to prove that state of mind, which they perhaps thought was going to be a bit of a hurdle for them. And so I think, although I'm not, I'm not, I was not party to the deliberations uh, internally, and it's never been explained to us. Uh, I sort of assumed that they talked about the conduct, pretty high levels of the Justice Department, and decided that it would be a little easier to prove 951, and that's why they chose that. Well, in the case of Mr. Barrick, what were the allegations? What was the country he supposedly acted as an agent of? And essentially, what were the allegations in the, in the indictment? Sure. And I should add that in addition to 951, he was also charged with obstruction of justice and making false statements to federal agents, uh, in both of which are, are simply in connection with a interview that he voluntarily gave in 2019 uh, after these events. But let me answer your question with respect to what. So what did he do? What did he do that they say made him an agent of a foreign power and why? 
why would he want to do something like that? He's 75 years old. He's had a, a stellar career. Why, as the capstone to that stellar career, would he decide that the, the, the best thing for him to do during his uh, approaching retirement is to betray his country and act as an agent of a foreign power, which I think is absurd. Um, so what do they say he did? They say that uh, he had meetings with uh, a man who is the national security advisor of the United Arab Emirates, as well as the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, and that following those meetings, Tom gave a number of television interviews in which, as well as he wrote uh, an article, like an op-ed, in which he offered praise for the United Arab Emirates and its leaders. This is what the government uh, said in their opening statement was an effort to manipulate the American public and policymakers. So what did he say uh, in these interviews and in these articles? He said, the United Arab Emirates is one of our most important allies. And that's, that's pretty That doesn't seem controversial to me. And it's, it's not controversial uh, at all, but it is one thing. And he also said that they were reform-minded leaders, young reform-minded leaders. And as he would say these things, he would never just refer to them. He would also refer to the leaders of Qatar and of Saudi Arabia. Sometimes he would refer to Israel as well, all in the same breath. So that's part one of, the, uh, of his agency, uh, alleged agency, and his intention to manipulate the American public is through these statements that he made repeatedly. Well, Michael, I have to say, up to this point, this is making me a little nervous. I have met Sheikh Taknoon, who's the head of security uh, in Abu Dhabi. I'm prepared to say, yes, indeed, He's a super impressive guy. He is reform-minded, forward-thinking. There's a lot of positive things to be said about Sheikh Taknoon. What I'm hearing here suggests that maybe I shouldn't broadcast those views. Somebody might say I'm an agent of the UAE. Uh, I, I would love to tell you that that's absurd, although it is pretty close to what happened to uh, Tom Barron. Now, beyond that, I mean, he, it, Tom's way of thinking about things is he gets a lot of feedback. Um, he likes to be the person who turns to people and says, what do you think about this? Do you have any ideas? Are there any other things you think I should be saying? And just to be clear, the context for these statements was Donald Trump had just announced that if he was elected, uh, he would ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Tom is a Lebanese American, he's of Lebanese descent, and a lot of his investor base uh, were from the Middle East, uh, specifically Qatar, uh, but also historically the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. Um, and it would be very, as he's trying to explain the Muslim ban, one of the things that he was saying is that, look, our, our allies in the Middle East are not, they're not really opposed to this because they also feel that to the extent that the message is that they need to fight terrorism at home, um, and that that's what the Trump, a Trump administration would be, uh, would be uh, uh, demanding of them, that they're on board for that because they're our great allies. So it's very natural for Tom to be communicating uh, with folks in the UA. What do you think about this? Do you have any other ideas? Are there different ways that I should be saying that? And that is a, a, it's, it can be a fine line, at least in the eyes of Justice Department prosecutors, between uh, asking what you think I should do and getting a direction 
as to what to do, which would bring you within the statute. Those statements are not the only acts of alleged agency. In addition to that, the UAE, uh, after Donald Trump was elected, Tom helped set up a call uh, between the UAE Crown Prince and uh, President-elect uh, Trump to congratulate him. He, by the way, did the same thing. He's, he's you know, no, known internationally. He did the same for the Prime Minister of Italy or the leader of Saudi Arabia for, for many other countries. He is alleged to have uh, assisted the UAE's ally, uh, Saudi Arabia, in getting the Deputy Crown Prince a meeting in the Oval Office uh, with Donald Trump. He uh, received a request to recommend a particular congressman to become the UAE ambassador, something which Tom never actually did. Uh, the UAE ambassador asked Tom if he had any thoughts on who might be a member of the cabinet now that Trump uh, was elected. And, you know, it, it, it's, there's certain things al along those lines. There's a relatively long list of alleged acts, but they're all of really the same nebulous quality of things that, you know, really uh, not in his wildest dreams uh, did he think could be violative of, of the law. And that is why during the course of these investigations, when the government started asking for documents relating to dealings uh, in the UAE and throughout the Middle East, Tom actually volunteered and said, look, if you got, he, he never had said no to any interview request. Here they hadn't even asked for an interview. And he said, how about I just come in and answer your questions? Right. Uh, thinking that he would, that's what a good citizen does is tries to help the Justice Department figure out what happened and thought he would be helpful. I mean, was there any allegation or any evidence that he had lobbied the government for particular policy positions or had tried to, in some concrete way, advance the interests of the UAE in Washington, D.C.? Or was it pretty much just saying these kinds of positive things, arranging a phone call, arranging a meeting and fielding a request that a particular congressperson be made the ambassador to the UAE? That is really it. What they focused on and what is so dangerous, uh, as John, you know, in every white collar case, it's all based on communications. It's all based on uh, text messages and emails uh, being misread, misinterpreted and taken out of context. And that's exactly what happened here is uh, their case uh, was built on text messages and seeing certain lines, like for example, they seized on a particular text message where Tom is communicating with somebody from the UAE about how uh, there was a, a proposal by Donald Trump to have him be a special envoy to the Middle East at, at, at some point. He never actually took a role in government at all, including that special envoy role. And uh, in a text message, he talked about how it would give Abu Dhabi more power for him to have this role. Um, and so they seize on that and focus on the language, I think, in a, in a belief that they could sell to the jury that, that certain language about Tom's relationships with the Middle East uh, would suggest a loyalty there as opposed to the United States, as opposed to really focusing on what he was actually doing. Because if you focus on what he was actually doing, the idea that any of this is an effort to manipulate the public or that there's anything inappropriate is absurd. He said they were a great ally. So did Barack Obama and George W. Bush 
and Hillary Clinton and every leader that we've had because they are a great ally. He never promoted himself to be Middle East Special Envoy. In fact, uh, leadership of the new administration, uh, as well as uh, other military leaders, were begging him, based on his relationships in the Middle East, that he take on this public service role. In terms of what he actually did, the crazy thing was that not only did he never advocate for the UAE, to the contrary, shortly a few months into the Trump administration, the UAE and Saudi Arabia took a very aggressive action towards the nation of Qatar. They blockaded, they imposed a blockade on Qatar. It's a very small country. It's a spit of land off of Saudi Arabia. And they blockaded it such that they could not get anything into the country. And without talking to Tom, Donald Trump came out and tweeted immediately that in support of the UAE's aggressive action against Qatar, Tom came out and said, this is wrong. We should not be supporting the UAE. We should not be involved. And we called Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, who testified that shortly after the blockade, Tom came to his office and said, this is crazy. We should not be supporting the UAE. Qatar is a very important ally. How you square that with the idea that somebody is acting as an illegal agent who had agreed to operate subject to the direction or control of the UAE, the last, if you were controlled by the UAE, the last thing you would do is tell the United States to change its policy of support of the UAE. How, how did the government try to deal with that evidence, or, or did it? Well, they tried to head it off by calling Secretary of State uh, Rex Tillerson, and they basically said, hey, so did you even know Tom Barrick? Secretary Tillerson said he really did not. Did Tom Barrick ever try to persuade you not to support the UAE? And Secretary Tillerson said, no, I had no discussions with him, nor am I aware of his advocacy in order to try to head off our, our argument. Uh, however, if you really think about it, if he was a foreign agent of the UAE, highly placed, one of the things he would try to do is to advocate for the UAE to the Secretary of State, the Chief Foreign Policy Officer of the United States. So the fact that Secretary Tillerson had no discussions with Tom Barrick whatsoever about foreign policy really undermines the government's argument. But, right. uh, uh, but what they were trying to do is try to head off that, that argument. Uh, and then beyond that, they were really in a, I think they had not focused on it. Sometimes prosecutors, particularly in a case that's built on communications, text messages, they can develop tunnel vision. They see the communications in front of them, they're not talking to any witnesses. They really didn't talk to witnesses in this case. This is a case that was not built on witnesses. It was built on text messages. And when you just are reading the text messages as a prosecutor, you can lose the arguments that are not directly in front of you. And I think this is one of them that they simply did not consider. Going into the trial, what part of the government's case was of most concern to you? Well, I mean, our greatest concern was... Tom's relationship with Donald Trump. And uh, it is not, we think, a uh, coincidence that they chose to bring this case in Brooklyn. And I think it was a, a cynical decision that if they brought this case in Brooklyn, that jurors, you know, a place which is, you know, they're not bringing this case in Texas uh, or South Carolina 
uh, or places where you may get more people on the jury that are uh, favorable to Donald Trump. I think they're banking on the fact that in Brooklyn, you're going to get people uh, that are not going to be so focused on the evidence and instead uh, will simply be blinded by the fact that this person had a relationship with Donald Trump and are likely to think, oh boy, anybody who had a relationship with Donald Trump uh, must be uh, up to no good. And they underestimated the jury system and it certainly underestimated our jurors who were uh, really smart. One of the, at one moment, our, our judge, who uh, Judge Brian Kogan, who's a brilliant, brilliant, unbelievably hardworking, careful uh, jurist, he came out and he said, well, if you were trying to pick, he had spoken to the jury uh, about an issue, uh, I think it was a health issue uh, related to one of the jurors, and he had gone back, spoken to them, he came out and he said, well, if, if your goal was to pick a group of really smart jurors, you did your job. And we really breathed a sigh of relief at that moment, because that is exactly what we wanted to do. Uh, we wanted smart jurors, and, and that, that really gave us a, a great feeling when we heard that. So I, I said at the top of the show that the case was tried in Washington, D.C. That was wrong. It was tried in, Bro in the Eastern District in Brooklyn. Eastern District of New York. So that was one thing that gave us concern, um, was will they be able to separate their feelings to the extent they have feelings about Donald Trump? Um, will they be able to separate those from their uh, careful review of the evidence and of their feelings about Tom Barrett. The other is that this case uh, involved a man that you met, Sheikh Tanoon, uh, and you're hearing about a lot of Middle Eastern leaders. Um, they tried to lump in uh, Saudi Arabia with the UAE, and they tried to claim that part of what Tom did in his acts of agency was for uh, Mohammed bin Salman, now the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think that they were also banking on the fact that you have the Trump factor combined with news about Mohammed bin Salman's uh, role in uh, the assassination of uh, a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudi um, card, playing the Saudi card as well. A hundred percent. And overall repression. I think they wanted to show that, you know, these are somehow bad countries, Middle Eastern, shadowy and that those two factors, uh, combined with text messages that they were going to take out of context, is that those are the things that we were most uh, worried about. I think people often underestimate jurors and worry too much about potential prejudice relating to nationalities. We recently tried a patent case in Delaware where we represented a Chinese company against Illumina, the leading gene sequencing company. And the defendants, and Illumina is a major, it's a market leading U.S. corporation, has a something like an 80 plus percent market share in gene sequencing uh, equipment. And the defense played the China card. They called our chairman, always referred to him as chairman such and such. They were very explicit about, you know, playing on the fact that our client was Chinese. We got a $350 million verdict for a Chinese company against a market leading American company and talked to the jurors afterwards. And they said they were insulted. They got it completely what the defense was trying to do. And they said they were completely insulted by it. So I think sometimes uh, people think that there's an angle there in playing on prejudice and they try to do that and jurors completely see through it. And it seems like that was true in, in this case. 
I think that's exactly right. And, and Tom testified, and he was a just a very formidable uh, witness. He is a he is a good person, and that's not something that that I, I think particularly when somebody testifies, when a defendant testifies in their own defense, jury really is able to take their measure, particularly when it's lengthy testimony as uh, as Tom's was, and they were able to see through all of that to the extent that they were at any point distracted uh, by those factors that I mentioned. Tom's such a, a, a warm and, and, uh, and kind and wonderful person uh, that uh, that came through in his direct testimony. So how, how long was the prosecution case and how long was the defense case? So I think that uh, the government case was about four weeks. We put on a case that was probably uh, about two, maybe 10 days uh, of, uh, of testimony. I am a believer that it is important. I mean, there are uh, people will try in criminal defense cases that will one, I'll just leave it all on the, on the government. Um, and they'll be able to, they just want to focus on whether or not the government met their burden. Um, I, sometimes that's the best you can do. And every time you call a defense witness in a criminal case, um, it, it, it can be a bit of a minefield. And you are, particularly if, if you feel like you're ahead, um, you can be inviting the government to score some points. You know, I'm a believer that it is uh, vitally important to the extent you can um, to put on a meaningful defense case so that the government feels that you have something something to say. Um, so it was it was a, it was a substantial case. I mean, four weeks is a long prosecution case. Were you able to put in a lot of defense evidence in the prosecution case? Were the cross examinations important? Um, so they certainly were. Uh, however, they didn't call many witnesses. So they called an expert to testify effectively that the UAE and Saudi Arabia are, are not terrific allies. Um, we were able through cross-examination to show that that's actually wrong and that, you know, I mean, it depends a little bit on how you define that term and all allies disagree on, on important points, but, you know, they are staunch allies of the United States. We were able to score those points in the cross-examination of their expert. They called Secretary Tillerson, who himself was a global leader of an international company, just like Tom. And so we were able to show that meetings with members of the royal family in, in the Middle East, as well as leaders of a lot of countries, are also the business decision makers. The government wanted to suggest that by meeting with Sheikh Tanoon, Tom was meeting with the national security advisor. That's true, but that's not why Tom was meeting with him. Sheikh Tanoon, the brother of the crown prince, is also one of the, one of the most sophisticated businessmen in the world, one of the wealthiest businessmen in the world. He owns a significant portion of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and he's the chairman of a large bank. I mean, he is a guy that you speak to if you are running a private equity firm. Uh, it's a meeting that anybody running a private equity firm would want to have. And so we needed to establish that and the thrust of our defense was Tom Barrick didn't act at anybody's direction or control. He was his own man. That's the defense. We hit that over and over again. His own man, he makes his own decisions. He does what he thinks is right for himself and for his business. And so we needed to establish why meeting with these people was part of business. And so in answer to your questions, we were able to do that through the government's expert to show all of these prominent business people that were meeting with the same people that Tom was. Through Secretary Tillerson, we were able to show that he meets with lots of government leaders during his time when he was running Exxon. 
He met with uh, government leaders around the world because they are the business decision makers. And that's how Rex Tillerson did his job running Exxon in order to make the point that that's how Tom Barrick did his job running a global investment firm. Did you ask Secretary Tillotson whether the UAE was a good ally? Interested in his response. It, it actually, we didn't get from him uh, on that score uh, as much as we hoped to get um, because you know he was more focused on, one of the reasons why the government wanted to call him was he was more focused on some of the uh, differences. Uh, and this was also a, a little bit of a difficult time for us to be trying this case. There have been times where our relationship with the UAE and Saudi Arabia has been very close. Uh, recent events. It's less close. I mean, it's, it's, it's not as strong as it's been over the last 70 years. It's been m- much more tense uh, while we were trying this case. There was a lot of uh, complaints from the Biden administration about Saudi Arabia not supporting us and pumping more oil, uh, which was necessary in our, uh, in our, our efforts in, in Ukraine and maintaining our, our European allies uh, supporting Ukraine and some of the harm that they're suffering by virtue of higher energy prices. Um, so anyway, that was a little bit of a difficult time and that's really where Secretary Tillerson wanted right. So I think you've told us really what the uh, theme of the defense was, that he was his own man, made his own decisions and wasn't acting at the request or direction of anyone. I mean, going into the trial, had you pretty much made up your mind that you were gonna put Tom on the stand? Yeah, really from, I mean, that decision is not fully baked, obviously, until, you know, the case begins. However, really from the moment that I met him, I thought this is someone who should be testifying. It would be very difficult for him not to testify, given that this case presented him in a lot of interviews. And the jury saw him answering questions on Bloomberg, on CNN, uh, on MSNBC, how come he wouldn't be answering questions in front of the jury? That would be tough. So that placed him in a situation where he really, uh, it would be difficult for him not to testify. In addition to that, he's so, from the minute you meet him, he's just a uniquely warm and wonderful person. He's very captivating. And so that makes him a very potent weapon because he is so patently good. And also, uh, and, and we found this a little bit in, a, in another, we got an acquittal in 2019 uh, of a client named John Bustani, uh, also in the Eastern District. And there are a little bit, there were similar issues. Bustani was a, uh, he had never been to the United States and he, if he did not testify, he would have been sort of a shadowy Middle Eastern figure who had paid a lot of money to Mozambican officials, which was the issue in that case. By testifying, he was able to remove that. And he became, you know, kind, articulate, charming, and he was not just this this object. Tom, similarly, our concern, if he did not testify, he would just be some Trump associate, some rich Trump associate. And it would be easy to put him in that box unless the jury had a chance to get to know him. And once you get to know him, you say to yourself, okay, I get it. This guy's not you know, a Trump loyalist. He is a man who is loyal to friends. He's friends with a lot of people and he was just trying to do the right thing. So the decision was really made. Um, uh, we, were, we were substantially along the road to that uh, very early on. Also, it can be very difficult, I believe, in cases that are intent-based in a false statements case uh, to not understand from the defendant's own lips 
um, what they were thinking at the time. Right. And uh, who were your other witnesses? So uh, Secretary Mnuchin was a very important uh, witness for us, a really, a really terrific uh, witness, very forceful. We put on an expert who ran um, uh, Middle Eastern studies at Princeton in order to demystify uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia uh, a little bit and to explain and get in some of the evidence about the uh, military relationship, the very important military relationship between the United States and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, particularly in the, in the fight against terror. Um, we put on Tom's administrative assistant who testified uh, not just what a wonderful person he is, but also about his schedule and about that th these, you know, the, the government in white collar cases, they wanna pretend like this small piece, which is under the magnifying glass is the defendant's entire life. And it was important for us to show, like, look, these meetings that he had with Sheikh Tanun or with uh, the Crown Prince of the UAE are the tiniest part of a very busy life where he spent, you know, two thirds of his time uh, in, away from home, flying all over the globe. This is meeting with investors is just part of his job. And she helped uh, to do that. And uh, so that was that was a very, very powerful, uh, very powerful testimony. Also, we spoke to. We called a uh, colony capital uh, employee, the chief investment officer, who testified that during this time period, when Tom was supposedly acting under the UAE's direction or control, colony actually foreclosed on a hotel portfolio that was owned by the UAE Sovereign Wealth Fund that made them very angry. And they threatened the whole relationship. And Tom, nonetheless, because it was in the interests of their investors, said, I don't really care we're going to foreclose and we're going to take the keys to those 150 hotels, which is not something you'd think that an agent would do. And that was very right. powerful testimony as well. How long was the jury out? They were out uh, two and a half days. Were you able to talk to them afterwards? You know, we have not uh, spoken to them afterwards other than, you know, as they were leaving, we were in the bottom of the courthouse and, you know, really thanked them. And it was very gratifying uh, that they turned to us one after another and said, no, thank you. I think that that through their body language in the courtroom when they delivered their verdict and as they left, I really think that they felt that the government was doing something wrong, uh, that they were trying to manipulate them, and that they felt they felt like they were a really important part of the process in making sure that justice would be done. While the jury was out, did they have any questions or notes? that caused you concern or sort of signaled to you maybe it would be going in the defense's direction? Well, so, you know, it was pretty clear to us that they wanted to be done with this trial. It was longer than had been forecast. Uh, and so we expected a, a pretty quick verdict. We thought that the case went very well. We thought that Tom's testimony went very well. We got a note suggesting that they had moved through the agency charges very quickly because the first note out was related to the false statements on the obstruction charges, and they asked for Tom's testimony, which was very favorable. But then the length of time that passed did give us some pause because when there are so many counts, the reason why the government charges so many counts, there were nine counts here, the reason why they charged that and why they charged so many different false statements, although they were not false statements, but they charged so many, because they're hoping for a compromise that somewhere in the jury room, someone's gonna say, okay, I guess that statement was inaccurate. Let's just convict him on that, but everything else is not guilty. And that's how they'll 
that's how they'll reach their compromise verdict. And the length of time that passed as it became clear that they were going through the statements very carefully one by one did give us some degree of concern that they may be doing just that. Uh, they asked first for Tom's testimony regarding his interview with the Justice Department. Then they asked for the uh, agent's testimony as well. And it became pretty clear that they were going through statement by statement in order to determine the accuracy of the statements that Tom gave. Sounds like a very hardworking jury. As, as in my experience, most, most juries frankly are. I agree 100%. And this one certainly uh, certainly was uh, very hardworking. And they were extremely attentive through this, through this entire case. It was an interesting subject matter. The allegations were interesting. The participants, the witnesses were interesting, seeing multiple cabinet members. It was interesting in that Tom's testimony focused a lot on his interactions with the president of the United States, someone who is a very controversial figure and his interactions with lots of other controversial figures. And it made it interesting but they were really, they were clearly very focused. At, if I can ask you, at, at what point did you get retained by Tom? Uh, sure. So we were retained after his uh, indictment. We met him and we were asked to join a larger team. And then he also had, there was a little bit of a change sort of at the top of that team. We still had a role, but it really, uh, you know, we were working uh, as a team with other law firms. And then as it became closer to trial, uh, that's when Tom made the decision that we would really be occupying the, the lead. How long in advance of trial did you learn that you, you would be the first chair, that you'd be leading the defense? Yeah, I think that was just a couple months before trial. So that would have been maybe uh, beginning of July, trial started in September. If we could step back uh, from talking about this case just for a moment, I, I have the impression that in recent years, the Department of Justice has been much more aggressive in its use of FARA. Um, before speaking with you, I didn't appreciate the difference between FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and 18 U.S.C. Section 1951. But I have, I kind of have the impression that as a policy matter, the government has been more aggressive in bringing charges. I mean, I. I seem to recall that there was a time that they wouldn't bring charges unless they gave you notice in advance and you then declined to register or didn't do anything. And it seems to have been used in cases that it wouldn't have been used in the past. Do you have any comments on that? Do you believe that that's consistent with what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It, it will be interesting to see what this result has, uh, what, what impact this result has on their overall FARA program which I think you're 100% right, John, has been very aggressive, but also confusing. During the pendency of this case, the Justice Department sued civilly Steve Wynn, uh, asking him to register uh, for violating FARA. He refused. Um, this was just notification, you should register. A, a civil action they brought, seeking an injunction. Correct. They, they first asked him and then were trying to force him to register uh, as an agent for acting on behalf of the Chinese government, he said, I didn't do that and I'm not an agent, but it was all civil and it was all done through open notice. Tom Barrick, yeah, strange. Tom Barrick gets arrested out of the blue and this is before we were retained, but he was detained. He spent four nights in San Bernardino County Jail pending these charges because they wouldn't even agree to bail. They wanted him detained 
uh, until, you know, he came up with an enormous bail package, which is completely uh, unfair. They detained him and his young assistant uh, for four days out of the blue. No notice, no discussion. Just showed up at his house and arrested him. At gunpoint, correct. So what does uh, what do you think this case might mean? I mean, if you're the government, what are the lessons? What are the what are the takeaways? Do you think this is going to have any this case has any impact on policy? Should it have an impact on policy? I mean, how might this change government thinking? Well, I do think that they will be much more restrained uh, in pursuing these foreign agent cases, whether it's FARA, whether it's uh, this statute, this illegal agent statute. I, I believe that it will cabin their use of it to where it belongs, which is in real heartland espionage cases. People that are in the United States working for foreign governments, spying, uh, gathering information, trying to illegally influence, uh, that, that's where the statute belongs. And I think that they're going to look at this as a rebuke and it's going to rein in their aggressive use of FARA. That's one place. The other is, it really has to do with what I'd like to believe it's going to change is in the area of how they manage interviews. Because what a lot of people that are outside of the criminal justice system don't understand is that people get prosecuted for obstruction of justice and false statements based on the uh, memories and the handwritten notes of FBI agents they do not generally record their interviews. And normally they get away with that. Normally they call the FBI agent and the FBI agent says, here's what was said in this interview. Uh, that's what was said. And the jury accepts that and that's it. But the only memorialization, I mean, John, your associates, when you walk in to an interview, you bring associates with you. They have computers and they type and they type as fast almost as a court reporter does because that's the way Kids take notes in law school now and in colleges, they just type, 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 type so quickly, and they're able to create something that almost resembles a transcript. The FBI doesn't do that. They, A, don't record in a day and age when nothing could be simpler than saying, I'm just going to take out my phone. We're going to record this. Is that okay? So that everybody knows exactly what was said. They instead have a, an FBI agent with a, a, a notepad. Longhand notes. Longhand notes. that Amazing. Uh, that, there That's amazing. Seven, there could be seven federal agents in the room. Their policy is we'll have one person making notes because they don't want discrepancies. They don't want inconsistencies. And they'll just take the notes. And then weeks later, they'll type up uh, a memo, which truly uh, oftentimes reflects what they want the memo to say. And that's, the, that's what they're going to say. Somebody committed a crime based on what they said. They don't even try to record the questions. So, I mean, in, in analyzing whether an answer given is truthful, how do you know unless you also know the question that was asked? They don't even try. Now, there's a reason they don't do that. If somebody's going to interview, be interviewed, and then later become a cooperating witness who's going to be subject to cross-examination, they don't want the record that a defense lawyer can use to cross-examine that person about their shifting stories. And so they don't want to pin their future witnesses down, and they so often develop cooperating witnesses that they don't do it. And, and this is a big, it's an enormous problem. When Eric Holder was attorney general, he, he changed the policy, and he said, if it's a custodial interview, it needs to be recorded. However, he also said, 
outside of that, it is, it is encouraged that it be considered, but they don't consider it. They just never do it. They mm-hmm. don't really record interviews. And we were really able to make the, a point through uh, my partner, Randall Jackson's brilliant cross-examination of an FBI agent um, that you can't trust anything about what was said. You can't send someone to jail based on what's supposedly said in an interview when you have no idea what was said in this interview. And I think that we established through that agent's cross-examination that there would be no way to know what, if anything, was said in this interview that should send somebody to jail. And I, I, I wonder whether this case will change the practices at the Justice Department and make them realize that while they would prefer not to have a record that can be used to cross-examine those future cooperating witnesses, it is much more dangerous uh, in this day and age where everybody's got a phone and everybody can record everything that's said to try to sell the jury that uh, on the idea that they should trust uh, some FBI agent's memory of what was said years earlier in this interview. It sounds like a completely antiquated policy. And I, I think that's a, a super important point. Well, I mean, congratulations uh, on your victory. It's, it's as you describe this case, it's, it's just astonishing to me that the, and kind of a little bit scary uh, that the case was brought based on these allegations and this evidence. But congratulations, Michael. You obviously did a fantastic job. Well, thank you very much, John. It was a real uh, labor of love. And, you know, as you know, uh, there is no higher calling in the law. It's uh, when you get to represent a truly innocent person who has been wrongly accused of crimes they did not commit. There is no more important, particularly when when uh, the public may have a view that may want to convict that person before they hear anything about the evidence, you know, that is really a lawyer's uh, highest calling and the best use of their talents is to see justice be done. And it's also weighs on you because it is also the greatest and scariest responsibility when somebody's fate under those circumstances uh, is entrusted to you and to see Justice be done is uh, is is really a, it's a great it's thrilling but it's more a great uh, relief and it's with great thanks to the to the terrific judge that we had uh, to make sure that we had that Tom had a fair trial and to the jury uh, to sift through all these complicated facts and make sure they reach the right result. That's very well put. Thank you very much, Michael, for joining us today. Thank you very much, John. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.